0: Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, why flying feels so much worse and photographing queer intimacy. All right, let's start the show.
1: Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and it is officially holiday season. You know, entering the holiday season also means that we are entering the season of holiday travel. Hooray! Hooray! And I mean, come on. There's nothing better than hearing the tinny sounds of bad holiday music while a gate agent tells you that your flight has been delayed yet again as you hold on to that last bite of your cold and soggy tuna wrap, knowing it might be the last thing you eat all night. Wait, just me? I kid, I kid. Anywho, I'm actually glad that holiday travel is coming back because that means that we are getting back to some sense of normal. But this year, because 2021... It seems like flying all of a sudden has gotten so much worse.
2: This has been a rough weekend if you're flying southwest. Nearly 2,000 flights have been canceled, leaving passengers scrambling.
1: American Airlines in the midst of a travel meltdown this holiday
3: weekend. Getting tougher maybe to fly, though. American Airlines said it canceled hundreds of flights over the weekend. Air travel nightmare. Spirit Airlines canceling 50% of its flights today after canceling hundreds of flights every day this week and stranding passengers. Now the company's CEO is...
4: Uh, yes, up. I mean, absolutely People are upset. People are tweeting about it.
1: That is Natalie Compton. She's a travel reporter for the Washington Post. What is the critical mass of cancellation before, like, the metaphorical pitchforks come out? I don't think we're there yet.
4: <laughs> I don't think we're there yet, although there was this big issue with Spirit Airlines earlier in the summer well, I when. Mean,
1: it's Spirit. Come on. <laughs> it's
4: Spirit. You're already signing up for a weird time, but the people were starting to get on top of some of the counters to try to, to yell about getting their bags back.
2: Everybody that worked for Spurt, they quit. That's why we still just sitting.
4: So there have been moments where it's like, oh, people are livid and they are showing it. But as far as everybody else goes, I think airlines are offering vouchers or flight credits to try to not have pitchfork status enter just yet.
1: And even if we aren't at our complete breaking point right now, we might be getting close. So I called up Natalie to dig into why these flight cancellations have been happening and why there have been so many other issues in the industry right now as well, like rising airfares and outbursts from passengers and not enough workers. So I've read a lot about these staff shortages for the airlines. What are the big factors? Is it people mm-hmm. afraid to be in public spaces because of the pandemic? Is it people resisting their vaccines and not being able to go to work? Is it airline employees like the rest of us going through the great uh, I quit my job vacation of mm-hmm. America where folks are just leaving their jobs? What explains the staff shortages amongst the airlines right now and how bad are these shortages?
4: There's a little of most of the things that you just said. I think that right now, because vaccine issues are so hotly contested, that that's something that's catching people's attention. But in reality, most airline employees have been on board with the vaccine requirements. And it's a very small number of people who don't want to get vaccinated to go back to work. Otherwise, one of the major issues was that when the pandemic happened and everybody stopped flying, a lot of airlines had to furlough a lot of people, and you can't just hire them back immediately and get them on a plane once you have that demand again. The issue is having to retrain pilots, retrain flight attendants to go through the most up-to-date safety trainings, all these new Uh uh, things. Plus, I mean, just in general, you have to train people before they they go and work on planes. So they couldn't make that happen fast enough. And as a result, they're trying to increase salaries, trying to make new incentives to get people back again. But sometimes that takes time just to rehire them.
1: Yeah. So are we in a situation now where the number of flights matches the demand for flights? Are we kind of in a flight shortage? And is that part of this crazy delay cancellation boom that we're seeing, too?
4: What we do know is that airlines put planes away when the pandemic started because, like, we're not flying as many flights. They have been tinkering with routes this whole time, which is something they can do pretty quickly. They can't just get planes out there uh, as quickly, but they can tinker with routes. But right now, we're still down from 2019 traveler output as far as how many people are going through TSA checkpoints every day. Still not as many people traveling as there were for the most part, you can still find great flight deals, which says supply and demand are not lined up at this point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it feels like leisure travel is back. Everyone I know has flown at least once now since the pandemic hit and people feel pretty comfortable doing that, but I don't know anyone that's actually traveled for business. Um, how big of a deal is that for the industry itself? And how much of a of a game changer could it be if business travel doesn't really come back? I
4: think that the average traveler doesn't see the absence of business travel as an issue, but it does impact everybody because business travelers are – the majority of revenue for a flight, they are at a major loss. They of subsidize revenue. us totally, um, and that works for hotels. That goes for lots of different aspects of travel. So, a lot of business travel has not come back. Uh, the numbers that people were hoping for were not even close. So, we know that conferences are coming back in Vegas. They're booking the The <laughs> World of Concrete was the first one to come back, and Vegas Wait, was the stoked. World
1: of Concrete conference. The
4: World of Concrete. They okay. have a conference lanyards and everything. So that came back. Everybody was thrilled. Delta happened. People had to rethink things, go back to virtual conferences. So even though a lot of business travelers are happy to not have to travel anymore for work and Zoom has made everyone's lives a lot easier in that way, the travel industry is really hurting because that did subsidize travel for everybody.
1: So then if long term, the nature of business just moves more towards a virtual work from home situation and there's less biz travel period, does that mean a reality in which overall leisure travel is just that much more expensive to account for that loss?
4: It's very interesting because right now we're seeing such a benefit because airlines are trying to capture leisure travelers by saying, we know you're price sensitive. You're not going to buy an expensive ticket. So here are these great deals. In the long term, yes, if we're still not having that business travel come back, they're going to have to figure out ways to make money in other ways. So I would say enjoy this moment now. (laughs) We're still in the golden age of cheap travel. So at this time, I still believe in the future of cheap flights.
1: (laughs) Okay. How much of a factor are these crazy stories we hear every now and then of, like, people who don't want to comply with mask mandates on planes and in airports being kicked out and getting in fights with flight attendants and punching people and getting handcuffed? Mm -hmm. The unruly passenger phenomenon. Mm -hmm. How big of a deal is that, really?
4: It does seem like things are out of control or happening a lot more often, and that's because they are happening a lot more often. Before the pandemic, the FAA would get about a couple hundred reports of unruly passengers every year, and in 2021, they've gotten 3,200-plus Huh. But I think it's a it's a real issue for morale because these flight attendants are essential workers and they've been flying through the pandemic or dealt with furloughs. And to come back and have your job not only be stressful because it's a pandemic, yeah, but you have these danger. people. At, yeah, so we're seeing a lot of people who are taking self-defense classes that are provided by the air marshal service
1: because Wait, they want to be prepared. flight attendants are taking... Self-defense classes. What does that look like? Have you been to one? Tell me you've been to one.
4: I have been to one. I went to one. (laughs) Yeah. I went to one in New York and I got to see flight attendants eye-gouging dummies, punching, kicking, trying to do all these things that might come in handy on a flight if somebody is rowdy. There are many flight attendants all over the country who are going to these trainings that are provided by the air marshals. But it's really upsetting that this has to be a thing that people go to in the first place.
1: Yeah. How are you feeling about it as someone who covers the airline industry? Do you think it's going to get better at all at any point soon?
4: I do think it's going to get better. One, one person that I was speaking with recently was saying, we're we're getting used to what the quote-unquote status quo is, and maybe this isn't going to be a hot-button issue forever. Maybe the mask mandate won't be part of our flying forever. No, I do believe that things are going to go back to normal. And and for the most part, most flights are going off no problem. Every flight that I've had that uh, wasn't my my one canceled American Airlines flight, everything has been good. And when it did happen to me, I emailed customer service and I got $150 flight credit. So even though my, my flight was an issue that day, I still got to fly and then I got another trip out of it to go on vacation. So okay. there's silver linings in these dark times. And my oh, there other... there are.
1: Okay.
4: <laughs> the big tip that I would give people right now is while things are still how they are, do not check a bag. If you there. You go can don't check your bag go go start start flying light yeah
1: i saw that george clooney movie many years ago up in the (laughs) air remember there's a whole interview where he's like never check a bag you know how much time you lose by checking in
4: i don't know five ten minutes
1: 35 minutes a flight i travel 270
4: days a year that's 157 hours that makes seven days you
1: willing to throw away an entire week on that and i was like george you're right (laughs) <laughs> and ever since then, I haven't checked the bag, and my life is better
4: for it. <laughs> yeah, get George on the phone.
1: <laughs> Only if he gives me some free uh, whatever that tequila he has. He needs to give yeah, me a bottle. A little, to little the <laughs> yeah, Amigos.
4: Yeah. Although, then you do have to check a bag because you you have too much liquid. So, well, there's a win, lose.
1: <laughs> Thanks again to Natalie Compton. She's a travel reporter at The Washington Post. All right, coming up, I chat with Jamal Jordan. He's out with a new book called Queer Love in Color. And it's just that, photographs of a bunch of queer couples. Jamal tells me what inspired the whole thing and why something so simple is still so profound
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Russell's Reserve. When master distiller Eddie Russell created Russell's Reserve, he sought to make a bourbon delicious for everyone. You can count on their age to perfection 10-year-old bourbon to sip neat on the rocks or in a classic Boulevardier cocktail. Order Russell's Reserve for delivery from Drizzly today and share with your chosen family. Russell's Reserve, 45% alcohol by volume, 90 proof, 2020 Campari, America, New York, New York. Please drink responsibly.
1: Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. So on this show, we talk to a lot of authors, authors who have written all kinds of books. But I think this might be the first time I've spoken with an author whose book was inspired by an unrequited crush. The story of how it actually came to be is a little embarrassing. That is Jamal Jordan. He's a journalist and photographer and author.
2: And I had like a really huge crush on this guy. I like liked him a lot. And there was a snow day one day and uh, realized that he just didn't feel the same way. So I spent the entire day just hiding in my house from the snow being depressed. And I had to like, Pitch something for this Pride special section the next day.
1: And because he is resilient, Jamal turned that sad story into a very nice story for the New York Times. The article's premise was very simple he'd interview queer people in love and take their photos.
2: I don't know what straight people do, but I imagine that if I were a straight person and I was sad about love, I would like, you know, look at rom-coms and convince myself that things would be okay. I'm a gay black dude, I didn't have that. So I wanted to go and make that for myself.
1: This article struck a chord. It went viral, and soon after, Jamal had the opportunity to turn that idea into an entire book titled Queer Love in Color. Jamal Jordan is here with me to talk about that book and what it taught him about love and what it means to feel seen. And I tell him a bit about what it taught me as well. How does one go out to take photos of queer couples? Like, what is the pitch? How do you approach people? Is it kind of like, I think the two of you might be gay, and I think y'all might be together. Are you? Can I take your picture? How does that work? There's so many
2: ways that I approach couples to be in the book. Almost everyone in the book felt, a proactive responsibility to like share their love story. One of the common threads in the process of meeting all these people is that everyone spoke about having this period where they felt invisible or like didn't have inspiration to look for. And so I think most yeah. people were excited
1: to be that. Yeah. When you take a queer couple's picture, in what ways is it different or similar to taking a straight couple's picture?
2: I actually, I learned how many things straight people take for granted. (laughs) Just like in being couples, right? Mm. Like I saw a a straight couple kiss each other in the gym the other day. And I just like couldn't imagine two gay dudes feeling the same kind of comfort in Mm -hmm. my gym, right? And I feel like that disconnect of comfort can transfer into like image making as well. For a lot of people, there is like this period when I start off where I have to kind of be like, hey, you know, it's okay to express intimacy here. You can kiss your boyfriend on the forehead for the photo. And there sometimes is this breaking down of the feeling that holding your queer partner makes you look less dignified. Someone actually said that to me one time. Um, So there's, yeah, and it was fascinating to me. And I don't think that straight people think that much about taking their picture in general. So even in the moments when it was like a less charged, more positive thing, it it is felt like a waited moment. There's this actually one story in the book that really stuck with me. There's this this couple, um Kay and Blaine, they're this younger couple. And Kay was like gay bash in New York City, I think a year and a half before I met them. Mm. And so I met them in Oakland and after speaking for a couple hours about how That event really shifted their perception of safety in public spaces as a queer person. Mm. Um, It felt like, you know, a really momentous, brave moment for them to stand in the middle of a park in the middle of the day and take photos publicly with
1: me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk about the ways that these queer couples would react when you walked up to them with a camera and said, hey, can I take your picture? And I'm sure that there is the gratitude of acknowledgement that i saw in a lot of these images in the book but i also suppose there was a little trepidation from these queer people when a stranger says hey talk to me now because you're you have to be a little bit more defensive just moving through the world and like hearing you talk about what it was like to just go to strangers and ask for their photos probably like two months ago my so and i were leaving dinner we had a few beers and we're walking home Mm -hmm. And these two women are walking past us on the sidewalk, and they're looking at us. And I was like, oh, my God. And then for a second, I was like, are they going to say something weird to these gay guys? But then they get up to us, and they say, y'all are such a cute couple. And we both just stopped. <laughs> one, because this moment that we thought could have been horrible was immediately diffused. And two, at least for me, because no one has ever told me in my life that me with another guy was cute. Wow. Wow. And it was just, like, profound and weirdly jarring. And me and my boyfriend had to stop and, like, talk about it on the sidewalk. But, like, that is the kind of baggage that you're interacting with when you ask folks to take their picture and they're queer and they're a couple. Like, our whole worlds are built around having an armor because you don't know what a stranger is going to do to you. And, like, I just wonder how much of that was real for you and how much of that did you see when you were approaching queer folks you did not know asking them probing questions
0: it's such a
2: great point you make because i would say for every one couple whose story is happily in the book there are probably like two or three where there were moments when one partner felt nervous about being photographed from the other or i met someone in a public space and they're like we would take a photograph but not anywhere where anyone could see like for a lot of the reasons that you said i think it was um First, you're trusting the stranger with your image and there could be either a conscious or subconscious level that like still being seen with a queer person and having that image be out of your control could be dangerous for you. At no point was I never not shocked about couples who felt uncomfortable in public spaces because I always chose spaces where I felt comfortable like middle of New Orleans and French Quarter Street in San Francisco, places where I'm like, oh, whatever, the gays, they're out. <laughs> I really had to like learn to respect the different ways that people, particularly like lesbian couples or like thin and trans um people felt less just safe in that space and would feel less safe after like the six-foot tall photographer guy left.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jamal, will you tell us the story of perhaps my favorite couple in the book? Mike and Phil from Detroit. So
2: Mike and Phil are also like one of my favorite couples from the book. I met them at a really interesting point in reporting the project that I was working on. About like halfway through the book, I went home to Detroit where I like spent my teenage years. And I'm taking all these photos of all these queer couples. I don't really know what I'm doing. I haven't found the bigger message of the book yet what do I do? What do I do? And so there is an organization in Detroit called LGBT Detroit. So I was there. I was just like lamenting to the guy who runs the program, Curtis Luscombe, And he's like, you have to meet Mike and Phil. You have to meet them. They'll just inspire you so much. So I reached out to Mike and Phil who were at the time 71 and 76. It was a couple of years before their 50th anniversary. And I usually go into meeting people with a plan We're going to talk for a few hours about like these things. We'll photograph each other this way. But I just showed up at their house and I was like, you know, I (laughs) have never actually met older gay black men together before. And this entire experience is mind blowing to me. What should I know about getting older in the world? And they really sat and just walked me through all of the chapters of their lives from growing up in Detroit and Flint, respectively, through the 50s and 60s. They met at church at the Shrine of the Black Madonna on Easter Sunday in the 1960s. And Mike
1: has... Stop, stop, stop right there. Hold on. That is amazing. Right. This gay couple met at church in the 60s. What was the first thing they said to each other? The
2: first memory they have of each other is Phil, who is the more, like, staid, serious member of the couple, seeing Mike and Mike saying that the hot red pants that he wore to church that Sunday, they worked. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil says to Mike that he was being dangerous and that the Lord was sent as his guardian angel to come save him.
1: Oh my God. And
2: 50 years later, they still kind of keep that dynamic going.
1: I love that so much. Have you seen a photo of the red hot pants? I <laughs> So I can't
2: find a photo of the red hot pants, but like, here's a funny thing, right? I've seen Mike and Phil like three or four times now. I hung out with them again recently for a Washington Post story. And Every time I go to photograph them, Mike is still wearing red pants. <laughs> <Just>
1: like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, if it works, don't change he's like, the form. Like, it okay. works, sir. You know, <laughs> you said that one of the central questions you wanted to answer in the process of making this book full of lovely images of queer couples. Or at least the question that prompted the book is, well, why can't I see people who look like me in love? Mm -hmm. Black people, people of color, queer people. So now that you have amassed hundreds, if not thousands of images of just that, how has it changed you and how you think about love?
2: There are two things. There's one couple that I met, Denisha and Amy in Atlanta. And I said offhand to them, I was like, you know, I wish I lived in a place like Atlanta. There's such a strong community of queer people of color there, even more than New York. And I would just like feel much more comfortable. And like they said to me, you know, you think that, but really no matter where you go as a queer person of color and love, even in the most affirming spaces, you're still going to have to like search and work and affirm yourself and other people. That just really stuck with me. I think like in terms of how the book changed, how I look at love First, this is going to sound so corny, but I really do think (laughs) that there is a level of just, like, unlearning so many toxic things that queer people need to do. And, like, seeing different people on these journeys helped me see different things in my life so clearly. What does it mean if you spend the first 15 years of your life being told that holding a boy's hand is a bad thing? Mm. How is that effective when you're like 30, 40, 50? Mm. And so I was 27, 28 when I made this book. You know, I was very much like, oh my God, no one's responding to my, okay, keep messages, I'm going to die alone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the energy going into it. And I don't know, I have a That's much okay. more patient,
1: expansive look. Uh, what love can look like. I love it. Well, listeners, you can go find Jamal Jordan's book, Queer Love in Color, right now. It's full of lovely, beautiful images of queer people in love. Jamal, will you stick around to play a game after the break? Yes. Thank you. All righty. Thank you, sir. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. It's been a minute.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Grifols. Senior Director of Corporate Affairs Vlasta Hakes shares how Grifols began producing plasma-derived medicines and explains how donors contribute to further innovation in the field.
4: Grifols is a global healthcare company that is the leader in plasma-derived medicines. Plasma is the liquid portion of the blood. Plasma is mostly water, but it also contains proteins and antibodies that help our bodies function. Griffles got itself started uh, in the blood banking business. And then as uh, technology was advancing, the industry realized that you can separate the blood from the plasma and then isolate those proteins and antibodies to produce a medicine. So from that beginning, there continued to be research into these different proteins that plasma contains. And as we find new uses for the proteins, we continue to need donors.
3: To learn more about donating plasma and to find a Griffel Center near you, visit GriffelsPlasma.com. You're
1: listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders. Joined now by two friends who are about to not be friends because I'm going to make them compete against each other. They're both going to play Who Said That? But first, tell folks who you are.
2: Uh, my name is Jamal Jordan. I'm author of Acryl Love in Color and um, general person who talks a lot on Twitter.
0: I am Hassan Williams, a producer, and I'm just happy to be here.
1: I love it. I love it. So y'all are two friends who are now about to face off in my favorite game, Who Said That? (laughs) Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? Are you worried that that that? this game and this competition is going to ruin y'all's friendship?
2: If this game takes down our friendship, uh, you know, maybe we didn't deserve it in the first place. We've been through much more than you can throw at us, Sam. Isn't that right, Hassan? Many things. Many things. Many,
0: many things.
1: Yes. But you have admitted that there is the potential for this game to ruin the friendship.
0: Oh, yes. I'm coming for Jamal's neck. Hassan's about to get ruined. <laughs> like. Yeah. It's it's on. We're We're fighting. The girls are fighting.
1: Well, let's get to it. I share three quotes from the week of news. You tell me who said it or just what I'm talking about. Okay? Okay. First quote. Though they were never intimate, their love for each other was legendary. They defined ride or die. In the beginning of our relationship, my mind was tortured by their connection. He was Pac, and I was me. Oh, this
0: is Will Smith. Yes, it
1: is. Okay. How did you just know
0: that? What? I'm, I'm a bad gal.
1: <laughs> Tell the story for our listeners. What happened with uh, the ghost of Tupac and Will Smith this week?
0: So, like, you know, Will Smith's been on a promo campaign, and, you know, they've been pulling tons of things from uh, his book, I guess. And he was just talking about how he was jealous of Jada and Pac when they first got together. He just didn't know the nature of their relationship, I guess. And he just, you know, in a very uh, uh, masculine way, kind of just didn't want to be bothered with Tupac because of how close he and Jada were.
1: I'd be scared to say anything about Tupac, even in his death. Let me tell you, it wouldn't be me. Well, is he really dead? (laughs) Talk about
2: it. <laughs> I mean, also, like, y'all, have y'all seen Tupac? Of course Will Smith was nervous. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that quote comes from Will Smith. He was talking about the rapper Tupac Shakur and Tupac's relationship with Will's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. So Will's new memoir called Will is out now, and he's doing the press for it. And he was talking about how before he got with Jada Pinkett... Uh, She was really close with Tupac Shakur. Jada and Tupac met at the Baltimore School for the Arts in the 80s. And they were close and public about it. Mm -hmm. And Will Smith said that he um, felt kind of in awe of Tupac, but also jealous of Tupac. And he said, quote, I hated that I wasn't what he was in the world. And I suffered a raging jealousy. I wanted Jada to look at me like that. I got to say, reading yet another quote about the weird, sad relationship between Will and Jada, I'm just like, at this point, stop talking and get divorced. Oh, I feel like it's been like two years now. First, there was the entanglement drama. Very and yikes. then there was a weird red table video where like Will Smith is just there in tears. And then there, like I feel like every few months, Jada finds a way to shame Will Smith in the love department.
0: <laughs> that, that's certainly a way to put it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hassan, you got that point. Uh, here's the next quote. For this one, just tell me what I'm talking about. Okay. Here's the quote. It was long and loud and impossible to ignore. A sound heard at the Global Climate Summit this week. A sound you don't want to hear in public around other people. Hmm. Camilla Parker Bowles said that she heard this sound come from President Joe Biden. It was a bodily function.
0: Oh, farting. He farted in front of the yeah. He he tooted. I'm sorry. I don't know the I don't know the, the appropriate term But know he tooted either. his little he tooted his little buglehorn. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't little. Apparently it was big
1: because it was loud and long and impossible to ignore. So that quote Uh, Comes from a source to the Daily Mail who said that Camilla Parker Bowles, the Duchess of Cornwall, apparently she heard President Joe Biden pass gas while they were making small talk at the Global Climate Summit this week. The source went on saying that Camilla hasn't stopped talking about it. Like,
0: wow. I love the folks who said he did it on behalf of Diana.
1: who said
3: that? What?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said, somebody out there in the Twitterverse said that he did that in honor of Diane. That is so chaotic. (laughs) And and that has brought me great joy.
1: Okay, can I just say I don't see it for Joe on this one? Because let me tell you one thing you got to prepare yourself for. When you're going to a big public event where you'll be forced to be around lots of people for a long time, you need to eat accordingly for the day or two beforehand. I'm sorry. That's what I do. Like, if I got to go to a conference, there's going to be a little mini cleanse before I get there because I
0: want to just uh, not have that problem. I do it for special events, but they're not conferences.
1: What? <laughs> oh,
0: my God. I'll say that. Uh,
1: that said, <laughs> who got that point? Me.
0: Okay. Hassan's on a roll.
1: Yes. All right. Here's the last quote. This quote tells you everything it's about. I want you to tell me where the quote came from. It's a certain website. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Here's a quote. James Corden in no way, shape, or form should be in or near the production of Wicked the movie. That's pretty much it.
0: Oh, this is the petition website. They put Which up a one? petition. It's What's the, it called? The oh. website. Change.org. Yes. Finally, I
1: got one. So that means, Jamal, Jamal, that means you're going to lose just by one point. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful.
2: Listen, I, I, I take what I can get, okay? <laughs>
1: OK, OK. So that line comes from a description uh, of a change.org petition called, quote, keep James Corden out of the Wicked movie. So if you haven't
0: heard already, there's going to be. I actually signed that petition. Really? Yeah, I actually you did signed it? that petition. <laughs> Not you being a bag stopper.
1: James Corden has enough bag. Look. I, if, I, if I have to hear that
2: man sing one more like showstopper tune, I am going to give up on musical
1: theater. So <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Anywho, All of This Hullabaloo is about a new uh, live-action Wicked movie that's going to come out soon. It's going to be directed by John Chu uh, from In the Heights fame. And the leads are going to be Cynthia Erivo as Elphaba and Ariana Grande as Glenda. Got to say, happy with those picks with that i'm happy to announce that the winner of this uh round of who said that is hassan congrats Uh, give us your speech
0: thank the academy or
1: whatever go ahead
0: yes i just i want to thank god first and foremost because without him we are nothing and i want to thank the academy and my agent and my manager that i don't really have but you know when (laughs) they do come along i want to give this to them because i'm just so grateful and My mom and my family and everybody, thank you so much. You all are so wonderful.
1: Do you want to also thank your friends, like your friend
0: Jamal? You want to thank him for losing to you? Who? (laughs) He said who. No, I I do. Thank you, Jamal, for inviting me onto this wonderful show and for so gracefully giving me the W. That's what friends are for.
2: (laughs) This entire game was rigged. Um, You'll be hearing from my legal team. Um, I don't think that you counted these answers correctly. Is all I'm saying. I love you, Hassan. I love you more.
1: There you go. There you go. I love this so What a delightful way uh, to end my week. Both of you, please come back soon.
2: We will. Thank you so much, <laughs> Sam. It's really an honor to be here.
1: Thanks again to Jamal Jordan, author and photographer, and his friend, producer Hassan Williams. Jamal's book is called Queer Love and Color, and it's out right now. Trust me when I tell you, it should be on your coffee table.
0: Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions.
3: Hi,
4: Sam. This is Deborah. The best day of the entire last year and a half was when I discovered that I truly am cancer-free. We did a test and there is no circulating tumor DNA. I was diagnosed with uh, virulent breast cancer a year ago last May. So this was a huge, wonderful day. Hi, Sam. This is Nia calling in from New Mexico. The best part of my week was uh, receiving the news yesterday that My student loans are forgiven under the public service loan forgiveness. I have worked for the government as an attorney and also for a nonprofit for about 13 years and I'm finally free of my student loan debt.
3: Hi Sam, this week for the first time in my life, I finished off an entire tub of sour cream before it turned moldy.
4: This is Sarah from Chicago. The best part of my week was conducting my first ever middle school choir concert. My 6th through 8th graders were really nervous about it. It came together kind of at the last second, but it was amazing to be making live music with real humans again and sharing it with friends and family.
3: Hi Sam, this is Mark. I am normally in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I am at the moment in Washington, D.C., I'm here, having flown halfway across the country, to lay a flower on the Tomb of the Unknowns at Arlington National Cemetery. This event has never happened before. The general public have never been able to approach the tomb in this way and may never happen again. Truly, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm so proud. I'm so grateful that I have this chance.
0: Thanks.
4: Thank you for all that you do. Have a great week.
1: Thanks again to all those listeners you heard there, Deborah, Nia, Michael, Sarah, and Mark. And thanks to Sour Cream, because yeah. All right, listeners, you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. We always want to hear from you. Just record yourself on your phone and send a voice memo to us via email, samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week's episode was produced by Janae West, Anjali sastry Kerbachek, Audrey Wynn, and Liam McBain. Our intern is Nathan Pugh. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.